Well, you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up our series this morning um, in this chapter of Ephesians. Well, one of the most impactful things about college, I think, at least in my experience, or just this stage in life in general, you know, even if you're not in college, uh, is the, the opportunity to live with other people, right? Roommates. Now, uh, so I hear some nervous laughter. <laughs> if your roommate is in here, don't make eye contact. Just play. It was, it was wonderful. I had, you know, had some great roommates, some lifelong friends, some bad roommates, you know, but all of it was really helpful. The Lord used it in my life tremendously. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, well, and how roommates come about is, is, you know, really one of two ways. Either you're assigned a roommate, especially if you're living on campus, or if you're living at home with siblings, so you're assigned to those two. Other times, and probably more commonly, especially once you, you get involved, you, you pick people that you, you want to live with. You try to live with people you know, and at least ideally, like, um, that's the goal. But I think that one of the most affirming things that happens that we just lots of times just overlook, but you probably felt this, is when somebody wants to live with you. Have you ever experienced that? Like, you got some close friends, and you're, you, maybe you don't live with each other right now, but you're like, man, I would love to live with you. I want to live with you at some point. They want to be your roommate, and you want to be theirs because you desire their intimate friendship. And you think, man, this would be, this would be sweet. We get along so well. Well, let's, let's change that situation just a little bit. Imagine two people who were formerly at odds, formerly at odds with each other. One was betrayed by the other friend. And yet, the one that was betrayed still desires a relationship. They still want to live on the same dorm. They want to live in the, in the same room. They forgive at a, at a great cost to themselves, and they still seek to room with the one that had previously betrayed them. Now, that's really uncommon. What typically happens? Something blows up, you don't work through it, and you get away from the situation, right? Uh, that's, that's the norm. Well, do you realize that, that one of the most central themes of Scripture is that God wants to live with His people? That's one of the central thrusts and themes of Scripture. God desires a relationship, an intimate friendship, a communion with His image bearers, those that are created in, in His very likeness. And what's more incredible than that is that we broke the relationship. We were that betraying college roommate, if you will. We betrayed him, and yet at great cost to himself, at the death of his own son, he achieved our forgiveness, if you believed in Christ this morning. He's clothed us in Christ's righteousness and brought us back to himself. And that, that bringing us back, bringing us near, that's the language that, that Paul's been using in chapter 2, toward the tail end of this chapter. And Paul wants us to remember that we as Gentiles, remember non-Jews from last week, we were once far off from God, way out there. That means we were non-Israelites, we were cut off from Israel's promises, from the covenant family, and we were forbidden from the place of God's dwelling under the old covenant in the temple. But now, 
Paul says that God has brought us near to himself by the blood of Christ. So, if we just look back in, in our text here, look, at, look back in verse 11, chapter 2, verse 11. This is review. We covered these things last week. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were once forbidden from the, from the temple, covenant family, cut off from those things under the old covenant. But now, in Christ, Paul has, says that we've, we've been brought near by his blood, by the blood of Christ. And last week, we looked at, in, in verses 13 through 18 specifically about how God did that through Jesus. How God achieved that through the blood of Jesus or through his death. But, to, but, but Paul hasn't exactly fleshed out what being brought near means. We touched on it a little bit last week, but, but he kind of left that to the end of this chapter. We know that we're now included in God's people, and the language implies we're close. We're close to God now in, in some sense. But how close? Well, Paul saves the most shocking statements about our identity until the very end of this chapter. And in fact, these verses are the conclusion, or we might say the climax of his argument of chapter 2. It's Paul's exclamation point on all that God has done for us in Christ. And here's his argument in a nutshell. He's going to argue in these verses that, that being brought near means that we are part of God's house. That's going to be a key word. We're part of God's house in the fullest sense. On the one hand, we're part of his household, meaning that's his royal family. God's brought us in as full members of his family, his house. On the other hand, we're also his house, meaning... His dwelling place. We are His temple now. We, the church, are where God takes up His holy residence. And a house is a good, good English term for that. Because in, in English, it can mean several things. Uh, you know, you think, I'm, Eleanor and Colin are part of my house. Well, that doesn't mean they're, they're bricks. It means they're my children. Right? They're part of my family. So there's the household idea. But, you know, they live in my house, meaning the bricks, right? The place that I live, they live there. So house in English can, can take on those, those uh, nuances. The same is true in, in the Bible, in Hebrew and in, in the Greek New Testament. Specifically, um, it can mean family or dynasty. House. You think house of David, Right? It's a, a dynasty. And it can also mean that the physical place that a family lives. And house was one of the favorite descriptions of the temple because it's where God lived among his people. So if you want more info on that, you can write down 2 Samuel 7. You can see there, there's a, actually in that chapter, 
there's a word play in Hebrew on the word house, both referring to, it's, it's that chapter where David wants to build a temple for God, calls it a house, and then the Lord stops him from doing that and says, no, actually your son's going to build this house, but I'm going to build a house for you. So what does he mean? Like a, like a structure? No, he means a dynasty. A, a, a dynasty of his sons, a family. He's going to build them a family. They're going to reign forever. That's what he says in 2 Samuel 7. That's what we call the Davidic covenant. Anyway, that's just an illustration of the way this word house is, is used. Our passage today is filled with house language. Now, if we were reading this passage in Greek, we would see that six of these words share that same house root. And in Greek, it's, it's the house in Greek is oikos. And so the root there is oik. Yeah, sounds kind of funny. But um, it's, it's the oik word group. And just to help us get our bearings here, let's, just, let's read this together out loud. And as we read it, I've circled the words that have, that have some form of house embedded in it. I just want you to see what Paul's doing at the outset. So then you are no longer strangers and, interesting, aliens. That has part of the house word group in it. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And that's the main idea built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So built, that, that verb that's actually a participle, is, has that house word in it. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, again, same language, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then again, the dwelling place is connected to the, to the structural imagery. Specifically, not just, not just, there's a lot of other structural imagery in here, you see it? But specifically the oik word group. So if we were hearing it, we were reading it in Greek, we'd be hearing this over and over and over, all these words that deal with that. So house is the, is the idea of this passage. I just want you to see what Paul's doing there. So big picture well, how could we summarize this? Well, really, Paul brings this chapter to a climax with two incredible descriptions of our identity as God's people. Two incredible descriptions of our identity as God's people. And the first description, like we've already said, is that we are God's royal family. We're God's royal family. Look in verse 19. So then, that's the argument, bringing this thing to a conclusion. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, number one, with the saints, and number two, members of the household of God. Now these are under the same banner here of what I'm calling God's royal family. Paul's conclusion from the previous verses is, is really twofold. We're no longer outsiders, or as Paul puts it here, strangers and aliens, people that don't have any kind of rights in the land or in the, in the nation. And we're now the opposite of that. We're citizens and members of God's own covenant family. So this means that God has opened up the path to citizenship in his people through the death of his son. It's open now. And it's not a 10-year process. 
it happens instantaneously at conversion. And what Paul is saying is that we as Gentiles get to join true Israel. And we inherit the promises of the kingdom alongside them. It's not that we replace Israel as Gentiles. That's not what Paul is saying here. What is he saying? We join true Israel. You see that? We join true Israel, renewed Israel, those Israelites who had believed in Jesus. And that's what Paul means when he says that we are, we are fellow citizens with the saints. We get the glorious privilege of participating in the kingdom and the new creation that was promised to Israel as Gentiles. It's stunning. It's, this is stunning uh, stuff here. And to be part of this true Israel means that we've been adopted into God's very own family, which is what Paul says next. We're members of the household of God. Paul's literally saying that God has made us his relatives. So we're part of the family. And as we've seen already in this letter, we're sons through the Son, capital S, in the sense that we're going to inherit everything that the Son has obtained for us already. And, and here's the idea, that, here what Paul is saying is that, that God has taken us under his roof, so to speak. He's become our father, and he cherishes us like the most perfect father would. It's incredible. Especially given where we were at previously. And, if we just keep drawing out implications from this, as his, as his family, the father has expectations for us. Just like any father would. We have a family culture. The Father desires us to imitate Him as we love our siblings in the church at Timberlake Baptist. Right here. He desires us to forgive each other like He's forgiven us. He's modeling it for us. He desires us to be patient with one another as He's patient with us. He desires us to commit ourselves to each other like He's committed Himself to us. He desires us to work through our problems together rather than to blow up at one one another and to leave the church and find a new one. This is what it means to be part of God's family. This is our identity. This is who we are, what God's achieved for us, and what a a privilege this is. And now, as, as shocking as this would have been to a first century Jew, that a Gentile would be actually part of God's family like this, that he would share in the family of Abraham because of the Messiah, as shocking as that would be, it's not as incredible as what Paul says next. This next description is an escalation of anything that's come before in redemptive history. Escalation just means it's, it's, something, it's something higher than, than what's come before. It's new, not just for the Gentile, but also for the Jew. Paul says next that we are God's holy residence. We are God's holy residence. Look in verses 20 and 22. I think all of this goes together, even though there's a couple different images happening. Verse 20. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple 
in the Lord. In Him, you also really, in Him, even you Gentiles are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is all God's, this is residential language. God's living with us. We are his, his house in that sense. Paul picks up this house theme and begins using this building language, initially comparing the church to a structure, right, like a building. As he continues, it becomes clear that this structure is not just an ordinary building. Instead, it's the very temple of God himself. Individual churches are now God's expanding or growing temple. We are the place that God has chosen to dwell. And this is an incredibly radical statement. I think we will say this and just kind of think, oh, he's using the church as kind of like a metaphor. That's not exactly what's happening here. He's saying we are the temple. So to help us get our arms around this, let's, let's take a quick just trip through the Bible on this theme of God's temple or dwelling. And I think you'll see why this is so radical. So, this theme of God's dwelling is just, like I said, it's pervasive in Scripture. And earlier I said it's always been God's intention to dwell intimately in perfect harmony with humanity, with the people that he made in his image. And this is incredibly clear in the opening chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So that's where it all starts. God's Garden of Eden was the place he met with man. It was the place he communed with, with us. Um, and this is symbolized and shown really in a lot of ways, but just easy one is in Genesis 3.8 when he's described as walking in the garden. The language of walking is the idea of communing with another person. Later it's going to say of, of Enoch and then of Noah that they walked with God. Same idea, same verb. So the, the idea is walking with God means they, they communed with God. They, they received forgiveness from God and they imitated God. So they had a relationship with him. So it started in the garden where this communion was happening. It's by default. That's how God created us. But because of our idolatry, because we wanted to be God ourselves, we were removed from God's sacred presence in the garden. We were exiled, if you will, in outside of the garden. But God was committed to his creation project, even if his image bearers weren't. He made a promise to reverse the curse, and eventually he chose the family of Abraham to be the family of this renewal. After the exodus, he took up residence again with them in the tent, or the tabernacle, which itself, by its very design was reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. A lot we could go into here, but another just easy example is on the veil that separated the most holy place from everything else was, a, was an angel like cherubim, you know, same type angel that separated God's presence in the garden from humanity after they had, they had rebelled. There's a lot more connections we could talk about, but I don't have time. And the point here in the, the tabernacle is that God has begun to come back to his creation, to his people, and to dwell with them without killing them. Um, 
the glory of God filled the tabernacle. And it signified that God's presence was there. Now, later, this tent was replaced by an an actual building, by Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. It, too, was designed to remind Israel of the Garden of Eden, very similarly to the tabernacle before it. And it also was filled with God's radiant glory after it was constructed. I mean, the the authors are wanting you to make these connections all the way back to tabernacle and, and Eden. But the sad thing about this is Israel, like Adam before, never put away her idols. She continued to worship other gods, even in the temple itself. So in God's vision to Ezekiel, it's, it's really sad because the people are worshiping foreign gods in the very temple of Yahweh. So God, the only response to that is that God destroyed the temple and sent his people into exile again. Very evocative of the first exile from the Garden of Eden. And his glory is pictured in Ezekiel 10 as leaving the temple. So it is the Shekinah kind of goes from the temple to another place. But in the exile, God still hasn't abandoned his creation project. He promised that he would once again dwell with his people. But this time... It would come after he made a new covenant with them. One unlike the old covenant. Ezekiel calls it a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant in chapter 37. And as a result of this peace, God says, I will set here, I'm quoting now from Ezekiel 37. God says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As a result of the new covenant. Isaiah even says, now another prophet, so Isaiah even says that this new temple will include foreigners and eunuchs. You're like, okay, foreigners and eunuchs, what's that about? Well, those are people who were formerly unable to enter the old temple. That's Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. So there's a promise of a new temple. Well, in the time leading up to Jesus, the temple was rebuilt, but it was under the old covenant, right? Remember, the new temple was under the new covenant. So clearly, according to the prophets, this rebuilding was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to erect a grand and glorious temple that included the Gentiles. So in comes Jesus. He came to enact this new covenant, which would bring peace and a renewed temple. Jesus claimed in Matthew 12, 6, that something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the physical temple is here, meaning he's referring to himself. Incredibly, he himself was the reality to which the old temple pointed. God would dwell with humanity in and through Jesus. John describes Jesus as tabernacling among us in John 1.14, which, again, evocative of the tabernacle imagery. God's glory came down from heaven in the Spirit and rested on Jesus, just like it came down in the Spirit, in, the other, in, or in, in Shekinah glory in the other times in the temple and tabernacle. 
In speaking about his death, Jesus said that the temple would be torn down, referring to his body, but that also at his resurrection, that the temple would be rebuilt. I'll tear it down and build it up again in, in three days. John 2, 19-22. So Jesus embodies this new temple here. And the rest of the, the New Testament begins to flesh this out. After Christ arose, the renewed temple project began. Right? I'll build it, I'll build it after, you know, when, I, when I'm raised. Jesus was the stone that the builders of Israel had rejected, but God had turned him into the very cornerstone of the new temple. Acts 4.11 The glory of God again descended, but this time it was on the apostles, not on the temple building. Acts 2, and, Acts, and then later, the, the house they were in, not the temple, shook after they prayed in Acts 4. And through the apostles, God began to lay a, a, a sure foundation to this new temple. Then he progressively uh, began to add more and more Jews to this temple as they believed in Jesus in those early chapters of Acts. And eventually, this temple came to include outcasts. First, the Samaritan, representative of the foreigner in Isaiah 56, and then also, very literally, a eunuch in Acts 8 also reminiscent of Isaiah 56 and the New Temple. So you see what Luke is doing in Acts 8. And then, not only did it include these outcasts, but it came to include full Gentiles through the rest of the book of Acts. So throughout Acts, it becomes clear that Christ is not only a new David, but he's also a new Solomon, who is rebuilding the new and expansive temple of all the nations. And in our text today, Paul gives us this new temple theology in sort of capsule form, right? It's his exclamation point on what God has done for us in Christ. But what I want you to realize is this temple language isn't just a metaphor. Like, we're, we're like, like a temple, you know, like God's dwelling here. It's the fulfillment, a fulfillment, on its way to a final fulfillment of what God has promised to rebuild in the Old Testament, through the Messiah. It's not the final fulfillment. That's coming in the new creation. But it's been inaugurated. It's begun now in this age. Right in the middle of the old age, here comes the new age um, in the Spirit. So, I just got a few descriptions of this. Sorry, I got the church. <laughs> got a little ahead of myself, or a little behind myself, I guess. The church six, and then the new creation seven is the kind of the theme there. So, we're God's holy residence now, Paul says, and just really quick, I want to just unpack a few of these things, maybe some descriptions here that, that we see about this temple. It's a stable, stable temple in, in the sense that it's firm. It's firm. The foundation and, and cornerstone are firmly laid. Paul says, verse 20, that we're built upon a sure foundation. And that foundation is stable. It's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They are the foundation. And what he means is this temple is, is built upon the twelve, Christ's apostles, 
all Jewish, uh, reminiscent of the, the beginnings, the first fruits of a restored Israel. The twelve plus the prophets of the New Testament. I think that's the idea. It's not saying that we're not connected with the prophets of the Old Testament, but he's saying specifically God had set apart apostles and prophets in the New Testament in those early days to give revelation to the church to explain the mystery of Christ. And they're laying this foundation. Or they are the foundation is a better way to put it. They provide the inspired revelation for the building of this temple. And Christ is the most important foundation, foundational element. He's the cornerstone. You placed it in the structure and it gave stability and guidance to the rest of the structure. And if it was off, then everything else was off. But the cornerstone's not off. Christ is, is firmly laid. The temple's secure. Its most important rocks are already laid to ensure its success. And God has been building on that foundation ever since. That's the idea. The temple is stable. Built, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. Verse 20. But notice that the temple is also um, under construction presently. It's growing. Look in verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. It's not done. It's continuing to grow. And specifically, it's growing into a holy temple. How so? What, what's, what's this growth idea that, that, that Paul has here? Well, obviously... We'd say quantitative growth or, or growth in numbers, right? We want to see more people, i.e. nations, experience this presence of God. As more and more people are converted, the temple continues to expand. And as the temple expands to every nation, so does the visible display of God's glory on earth in the church. Okay? In one sense, God is present in every place. We would all say that. He's omnipresent. That's true. Jeremiah 23:24. But in a special sense, he is present in his churches. As his churches multiply, he expands the glory of his presence. And one day, God promises, Numbers 14:21, that he promises this right here, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And the way he is on on the path to fulfill that is through the multiplication of churches, i.e. structures, i.e. temple. So that's the growth in numbers, I think, is one way that this church grows, but it's also a qualitative growth or a growth in maturity. We also grow as this temple as we grow up into maturity. And that's really what this, the rest of this letter is going to focus on. As Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, he removes the idols in his temple. He takes the throne and we learn to truly worship him, to truly trust him, to imitate him. And he's equipped the church to do this well. He's given the church pastors to help build up this temple. And the end goal is that every member in the temple, every stone of the temple, is used to equip and to continue to build up that temple in interpersonal ministry to one another. That's the goal. Each stone, if you will, is going to participate in the building of the other stones. And so the body grows. And that's chapter 4 of Ephesians. We're going to see that very clearly. So, my point here is that, or Paul's point is that the temple is growing and that we're part of this. Um, 
immense privilege. It's also a holy temple. A holy temple. He says that. Verse 21. We're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. It's a temple that reflects the holiness of God in Christ. He's made us holy. He's done that. He's purified us. We are holy. We're saints. That's what the word means. But we're also to pursue that holiness that we already have progressively now in this temple. And just as a side note, this word for temple is the, is the word for the, whole, like the inner sanctum of the temple, if you will. There's another word that refers to the whole temple complex. Paul doesn't use that word. He uses the like, innermost temple word here, saying that, that the temple is, is the most holy place. It's the, it's the holy of holies, the place where God would dwell. Imagine bringing something unholy into the holy of holies. The church, each member of the church, makes up the most holy place under the new covenant. And that is amazing. We're able to exist there through the blood of Christ. And finally, it's a unified temple. It's a unified temple. The last thing that we're going to draw out is, is how this temple is described as, as being built up together. Together. Paul makes this um, very emphatic in the last verse, in, chapter, in verse 22. He says it like this. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it. In him, that's in Christ, even you Gentiles are being built together with the Jewish believers into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the very last thing he says in the chapter. That's his climax. Even you, Gentiles, are being built together. And that the idea is, is unity. The unity of the temple here is put on display. And this has massive implications for how we relate to each other here in the church. If God has created us as a unified temple then if I bring disunity into the church, if I gossip, if I refuse to forgive, if I review myself as better than other people, if I'm trying to bust up things, like I'm trying to bust up the temple. You see that? We want to help build the temple. We don't want to tear it down through our sin. So we've got to take heed now that, that we're not opposing the master builder of the church, Christ, um, who is very explicit in his intentions for, for the church. But, thanks to us, the whole back half of this book is about how to build the temple. Okay, Chapters, chapters 4 through 6, <laughs> he's going to flesh that out for us. And it's, it's amazing. So that's, um, that's all I'm going to say right now about this. So, just wrapping up here, what do we take away from a passage like this? Or I, I think, I mean, there's just a lot, but... If I could say that I want to end this morning by just drawing several things out that, that we know that God wants for us from this passage. Number one, God wants you to realize His intention is to be with you. His intention is to be with you. Not because He needs you, but because the the overflow of his character is to dwell in harmony and love with you. We saw that several several weeks ago in this very chapter. God desires to relate intimately to you in a covenant relationship. He's aiming for your true worship. 
That's why He saved you. In Christ, God makes His home with us. I mean, I even hesitate to say it this way, but it might help get the point home. He rooms with us. You know? Sometimes we think of of God wrongly as disinterested or aloof or frustrated with us. Now, we certainly grieve Him, but He's not frustrated in a human sinful way. We think of Him sometimes as way up there, we're way down here, but God is profoundly present with us in the New Covenant. That's what this is saying. We can't be separated from His love by anything. God wants you to think of Him this way this morning. It's His desire. The God of the universe wants you to think of Him like this if you're in Christ. If you're not a believer, this can be about you today by resting, trusting in Him. God wants, wants, wants this from you. He wants you to rest in Him. He wants you to entrust yourself and your anxieties and your problems to Him. And practically, do you have times built into your schedule where you rest in God? You learn to grow in this relationship? Times to bring your anxieties to Him? Do you know how to do that? I mean, let's just get really basic. If not, let's reach out. We will help you develop a life that learns to commune progressively with your Father. Because that's His intention for you. God wants you to realize that His intention is to be with you. It also means that God will not share His glory in His temple with another idol. He wants you to realize that He will not share His glory with another. So let's not be like Israel, who refused to put away her idols. She refused to to put away her functional gods, what she rested in and trusted in. God wants you to learn to identify your idols, the things that you trust, the things that offer false hope, the things that you worship. He wants you to forsake your idols and turn to Him as the living God. He will not share His glory in His temple. He won't share the glory that He's desiring for Himself in your heart. And my prayer often for myself is that, that Christ would dwell in my heart through faith. That's what he, Paul prays in, the, in chapter 3 for the church, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the same language as this temple language. That Christ would dwell there, um, meaning that he is enthroned and the idols are being dismantled. Number three, God wants you to see the profound nature of the church. He wants you to see the profound nature of the church. The church is His intimate family. And it's His prized temple. It's the place where He has chosen to dwell. The local church should be equally precious to us. It should be prioritized by us. We shouldn't treat it casually. We should commit to a church and give ourselves to working with Christ and working with her pastors to build up the growing temple. So become a member if you're not already. Get involved beyond the, temp- the typical casual college student if you haven't already. And join the renovation project of the new temple. So God wants, wants you to see the profound nature of the church. And finally, last point. God wants you to share a burden for the expansion of His glory. God wants you to share a burden for the expansion of His glory. As churches multiply, so does God's visible glory on earth. 
And we don't often think about it that way. But that's true. In church planting, it's like heaven is colonizing earth. Many temples are established among the nations, reflective of God's one unified true temple, which is the church, the one new humanity. So I would encourage you to think missionally. Let this pervade your career and all kinds of things and and give to church planting efforts. Participate in them yourself. Pray for them. Um, And just find ways that you can, even now, participate in the expansion of the temple um, and thus the spreading of the glory of God and the fulfillment of all those texts in the Old Testament that say God's glory is going to fill the earth. So, incredibly radical vision here at the end of, at the end of chapter 2. And that's, if you want to summarize all of chapter 2, you'd say it like this. God has raised up from the dead a new humanity for himself among whom he lives. Okay? So, summary. God has raised up from the dead a new humanity for himself among whom he lives. And it's growing. So, more on this later, but uh, super exciting. If you have questions, please, please come up and talk.